Well, this morning, uh, just as a reminder, my dad brings you his greetings, but he is out floating around in the sea somewhere uh, near Italy, and you might read the little, uh, his little note there in the bulletin and kind of see what happened this past week as he was in Rome and got a chance to uh, speak at a, preach at a little church there, a Baptist church in Rome. So a sweet thing for him and be able to send out these missionaries like that, you know, so uh, it's great. And um, so tonight, this morning, we're going to talk about what is your end game? What is your end game? The, last week, what is your end game, ladies? And then this, t- this morning, I'm going to narrow in on the men. What is your end game, men? What is your end game? Uh, what, a, what an important message, I think, for all of us today in the day that we live in. So last week, I was nice to the ladies. Men, I'm not going to be very nice this morning, okay? I'm just going to bring it. Several years ago, uh, we rented a house in a, in a typical suburban neighborhood. We were there for a few years, and we moved in and started getting to know some of the neighbors. I looked, and I realized, I, I noticed something taking place uh, around me. I soon noticed that my neighbors uh, were locked in an epic battle. And, in fact, you, you look outside your window, you'll probably notice it, too. Uh, it was this guy on this side of us and this guy on, across the street over here, especially, and they were just locked in this battle. It was the stereotypical American male battle. Who can outdo who? Uh, I'm going to get a truck. I'm going to get a nicer truck. I'm going to put in a pool. My pool is going to be nicer. Uh, I'm going to get an outdoor kitchen. You should see my outdoor kitchen. Uh, these guys, these two guys always really had to have bigger and better. They would stand outside and I'd watch them talk and, and face-to-face, belly-to-belly, and, and get right to it and talk. I know, I know what was going on out there. But here's the crazy thing, I'm, I'm an American man myself, and I felt myself being pulled into this uh, strange battle. Uh, in fact, it got, it was, this is one of the moments that I believe God was really getting my attention, actually, uh, about this materialistic mindset. And, I, and in fact, when, when I talk to my kids and I tell them, uh, there, was, there was a time that God had to discipline me, and they always are interested in that. Ooh, Dad got disciplined by God? Interesting. Let's hear this, you know. And, uh, and I, I remember this time, it was one night after people had left our home, and uh, we were standing out saying goodbye to people, and, and we were getting ready to go back inside, but I was standing outside, and I said, this is a very nice neighborhood. It's very clean and uh, this is a really, really nice street light that we have right here next to our house here. I mean, that's just so safe, and that just makes everything feel so nice at night and secure. And man, I was just at peace, and I just went inside in this nice place and just felt so good about that. I went to sleep, and the next morning, everybody's getting ready for to go to school. And I said, all right, kids, get out there in the car, and we got to go. A few minutes later, they came back in. Uh, Dad, uh, the car's not out there. I said, quit messing around. Get out, get in the car, kids. Let's go. We don't have time for this. Quit. And, and then they said, Dad, the car seriously is not out there. And I went out, walked outside, and our car was gone. Um, boy, that takes you a minute to even, you know, register and kind of come think, where did I leave it somewhere? Did I put it somewhere? Where is this car at? You know, and uh, I realized, okay, our car is gone. Somebody actually decided it was going to be their car, I guess. And and so our car was stolen. I, literally, the, the, the time I was focused on the safe and nice and clean neighborhood that we were in. It was, and I, I, I sensed the, over the next couple of days that it was, it was the Lord allowing something to happen in my life to remind me, I, I just sensed this so strong, Luke, who's your protector? Who's the one who's really watching over things? Who's the one allowing things? Is it that stupid street light out in front of your house? Is that really what you're trusting in? That street light, that's what's doing everything, huh? And that's where I felt my heart was and just uh, feeling like I was away from God. But God is my protector. 
And uh, a few days later, they found the car, and I would, I would tell you, not one thing wrong with it. They, I don't even know how they started it, because they didn't even pull out the ignition or anything. It, they just t- Literally, they just had to go from one spot uh, to the other spot in town, and they just left it parked there, and they found the car, and we went and got it and brought it home. It was like nothing had ever happened. So I, I sensed that God was just teaching us a lesson there. But is this what a man is, be, is, is all about now, becoming a man? Is being a man all about materialistic things? Is that what really it is, having nice things? Several weeks ago, I came across an opinion article that talked about the suicide rate among men, particularly white males. In fact, white males in America account for 70% of the suicide deaths. The author of this article claimed that the highest suicide rate in America was in Aspen, Colorado known for their wealth and affluence. The, the writer of this article, who I don't think was a Christian, or at least not coming from a Christian perspective, is uh, blamed in part the, here's what he blamed, he said, I, I blame the expectations of the American dream. He said, one of his words were, in America, we measure success by dollars and creature comforts. In America, we measure success by dollars and creature comforts. You know, and the expectations to achieve that, for, in his opinion, begin to mount in, in the minds and the hearts of men, and then as the expectations mount, so does the stress to achieve certain things. And when they don't achieve those things, or when something comes crashing down, or something happens, it becomes too much for them. Now, I think that the issue is much deeper than just that. And certainly, let me just say this morning with all authority that Jesus can cure any ailment that any of these men think that they have. Absolutely anyone. But I do think that this this guy who was writing this article was recognizing something that was going on inside of men in particular. We men are getting sucked into a vortex uh, where it's all about building a life here and now. A life of things and a life of things you can see and touch. And for many men and women, happiness, their happiness and their fulfillment is tied to how they think they're doing on this earth. So if you lose your job or you, lose, or you have some financial failure or whatever, it finally catches up to you and you feel completely devastated and absolutely empty. To many, really, then what we're saying here this morning is that life has no end game. It has no end game. It's all about the next temporal thing. It's just what happen- what's happening today or the next dollar I can get, the next purchase, the next vacation, the next adventure, the next temporal, temporary thing. And that is very common and it's a horrible place to be. I think we could all agree it's a horrible place to be in our life. Relying on a material item or something that we can hold or touch or see to give me satisfaction, man, that's a horrible place to be. All, but all of us deal with this in one way or another. You say, Pastor Luke, listen, I know money and material stuff cannot buy happiness. If there's one lesson I know, I know the material stuff doesn't equal happiness. Well, then here's my question. Let's be honest this morning. Why do you want more of it? Why do you want more of it? Let me be very clear this morning. Money is not bad. Wealth is not bad. Stuff in and of itself is not bad. Money itself is amoral. It's it's not a moral thing. It becomes a moral issue once it comes into the possession of a man or a woman. How we view money and what we do with it is what God is really concerned about. So, here's the question. Does God want everyone to be poor? Is it even possible to pursue success in material things and have material things and still be a man of God? Is it possible to have those things and still be a man of God? Can wealth and God coexist? Well, these are some questions that men who want to follow God, who really do deeply want to follow God this morning, and I'm hoping there are men like that in here, that they might be asking those questions. How do we make that, uh, those two coexist? How do, we, how do I become a man like that on this earth? 
So today we're going to look at a man in Scripture. This man's example is, is absolutely amazing. If you're going to go try to find a man in Scripture that is, I think, one of the epitome of a male, God's man on earth, it's going to be this guy. He was able to handle great wealth. He built a great life on this earth. And he also lived a life that was very pleasing to the Lord. And I have three principles that I want to draw out from his story that we can learn from his life. His name was Job. Job. Job, not Job, Job. His name is Job, and his end game made all the difference in the world. Now, Job lived at a time during the patriarchs. The patriarchs in the Bible are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what we're saying when we, we say patriarch. We're, so, we're talking way back in history. Uh, we're talking before the time of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a time of, uh, where the people of God were really living like nomads, but they still had things, and they, there were many of them that had great wealth. Job, the book of Job, is one of the most beautiful literary works on, on planet Earth, they say. As far as Hebrew poetry goes, there's hardly anything to match it. It's a beautiful account of what happened, but, but it is a real, true story of a man. And it is extremely relevant today to us as men and as women because, and here's the reason it's so relevant, because humans are humans no matter where you go or what time in history you travel to. Humans are humans, and we all face the same feelings. Job chapter 1, let's all go there. Job chapter 1 and verse 1. Job chapter 1, and let's just draw some principles from this man's life. There was a man in the land of Uz. That is a great name for a, a place to live. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So let's just look at this verse here for just a minute, because this is an incredible description of this individual. There was a man, it says. There was a man. I want to start, I'm going to stop right there and think about this for a second. This is that, because that is the first thing to notice. This is a man. This is a real man, a God-defined man. God is about to launch into a definition of a man who is pleasing to God. Everyone has their definition of a man today, it seems like. In our day, manhood, I will say, in my opinion, as I look around, manhood itself is being hijacked, and what it means to be a man is being hijacked. You know, today there's a lot of talk about toxic masculinity, and a lot of the people that are talking like that and using phrases like that are people who want men to be more like women. But since God made man, he is the only one that can give us a true definition of manhood. No one else can give us a definition. Not even another man can give me a definition. So if we don't get our, our ideals about manhood and womanhood from the Bible, then we're going to be off base. Ladies, this morning, let me just tell you, get your ideals about manhood from the Bible. Men, get your ideals about manhood from the Bible. Men and women, the Bible tells us, and this is just one aspect of this, men and women are equal according to God. They are equal. They are equal in essence. They are equal in importance. They are equal in worth. And they are equal in every way. But they have a unique function, and role in God's plan. And that's clear in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 tells us this, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Whoa, Pastor Luke, you just went there, didn't you? That is male chauvinism right there in the Bible. Well, let's be careful about the conclusions that we jump to. This verse is speaking about marriage relationship, first of all. And it's not that every man is over every woman. It doesn't say that every man is over every woman. That's not what it says. It says the man is the head over the woman, meaning his wife. That's the, that's the context. Well, what does that mean, Pastor Luke? Are you saying he's more important? No. 
Because the end of that verse says the head of Christ is God. So what Paul and what God wants us to understand is, are we saying that Christ is less important than God? If Christ, if God is the head of Christ, then what are we saying there? Well, what God is actually saying is he's referring to the roles, not who they are, not the essence of who they are, not the importance of who they are, or any of that. What he's saying is God and Jesus are the same. They're one. They're equal in all, every way. But in the Godhead, in the Trinity, there, is, there are roles and functions. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit each have their roles. So let's not get sucked into anyone else's view about what a man or woman should be. God lays it out, and there is a role, there's a special role that we will play, that it's, and it's a very important role, and it works best when we come under God's ideals and God's plan. Only the creator God can say what a man is. So here's what God says about this man, Job. That man, it says, was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So here's the first thing we see. Number one, he focused on his inner man more than his outer man. Job was a man who focused on his inner man more than his outer man. Here's what Job recognized about life. He recognized that his inner man was going to have to be strong if he was going to be the man of God that he wanted to be and that God wanted him to be. Here are the words that God uses. Perfect. Now, does that mean Job was sinless? He never did a wrong thing? No, that's not what that word means. That word, it means... Uh, complete, or to, to be morally innocent, or the word we would use a lot is integrity, moral integrity. He was a man of deep integrity, moral innocence. He was a man who was upright, this says, meaning straight or level, meaning he kept in line, he kept himself in line with God, with God's word, with what God would say. And it says he eschewed evil, now, that doesn't mean he sneezed out evil. It means that he turned aside or departed from evil things. He turned away from evil. And it says he's one that feared God. Only a couple men in all of the Bible are described with this specific phrase. He, he feared God. And again, as we talked about last week, one of the meanings of this really is that the magnitude of God, the holiness, the greatness of God Hit, when it hits a person like a ton of bricks, you go down to your knees and you say, God, you are God. You are great. And I have no choice but to honor and revere and bow down to you and live to please you. Ultimately, it means a person that wants to please God because he's so revering God. And he's extremely serious about God. To fear God means you're serious about God and obeying his word. So that's who we have right in here in front of us. That's the kind of man we're talking about when we talk about Job. It would have been very hard to find another man on earth like Job. Even God was impressed with this guy. But this type of life, I just want to mention this morning, does not happen overnight. There's no way. Job had to have a daily inner focus that was different than the other men that were around him. He had to have a deep hunger deep inside of him to please the Lord. And he had to be able to resist the pull of the world on him. Men, sometimes I find that uh, we ignore our inner life until things are getting completely out of control. A lot of guys, they just ignore what's going on on the inside until life is completely out of control. Yeah, I hate gardening. I hate gardening. I don't like it. I would rather plant something and then tend it one time, trim it once every 10 years, and then be happy. If I could find a plant like that, that's why I have a fake plant in my office that just sits there. But then if I did that, if I planted a plant and just only tended it once every 10 years, things would be a disaster, a complete disaster. Thankful for my wife because she keeps everything tended and nice and trimmed and keeps it going. And that's, I, I, I see the correlation there between men and women uh, so much. Uh, men, we ignore that, that inner part of us. We don't tend to the garden of our hearts very often. And a lot of times women are more in touch with that. 
But guys, our inner lives have to be tended to regularly and carefully. See, for Job, one of the keys for, the, for him was to stay upright, it says. And to be upright, to be in line, it means really to be in line with God's word. It means he was getting fed by God's word and he was keeping his life in line with that. This, this kind of living kept him from being ruined by earthly success. Men, here's my question this morning. Are you reading your Bible on a regular basis? I mean really reading it. How can we expect to lead families, be a good husband, be an effective employee or employer, unless we are hearing from God ourselves? The stats actually tell us that in America, people generally like the Bible, but they don't read it. 87% of Americans, it said, own a Bible, but only about 20% of it read it regularly. Out of church-going people, only about 40% read it regularly. I'm thankful for that 40%. But that's a lot of people who admire it, but very few that actually let it rule their life. Job has a lot of material wealth, but he kept it in a right perspective. How was he able to do that? Because he lived a life that was directed and he kept in line with God's work. He kept his inner life in line with God's word. If there's one thing I could say this morning about my own father, last week I talked about my mom, I'm going to mention something about my dad, your pastor. As growing up, I always knew one thing, I knew that he would make sure that his decisions, the decisions he made in his own life and in our life, and I was very secure in this, that his, his decisions would line up with the word of God. He would have a verse behind his decisions. He would have a verse to back up why he was going to do what he was going to do. I knew, I had this sense deep in my heart that he would not go outside that book that he always carried around. He would not go outside that book. I was secure in my little heart and mind because I knew dad was meeting with God. He had a meeting regularly with God. But this morning, there's so many guys who are missing that and missing out on it. Even good things, you know, can keep us from closeness with God. Even doing church work or doing good things. You know, doing church work is not a substitute for meeting with God. Doing good things is not a substitute for meeting with God. I like what Adrian Rogers said. He said, some people are too busy being good that they aren't holy. Some people are too busy being good that they are not holy. I know it seems hard to get into the Word sometimes. And men don't like to do things that don't have immediate, visible results a lot of times. But, but again, this is like gardening. It's like exercise. It's working, but it's, it's working when we go into the Word and read the Word and let it read us but it's under the surface. It's that work that's happening on the inside, and it will come out later. You'll have the power, the wisdom in that moment that you need it the most. Holiness is a harvest. Holiness is a harvest. Now, one more thing that's important here real quick, and that is that, is that it says that Job eschewed evil. He turned away and departed from evil. This was Job's approach to sin in his life. This is the kind of man he was. If he would, if Evil would be coming and knocking at his door. He turned and departed. He ran. That was his approach to sin. Sin's coming near me. My approach is to run. Sometimes running is a cowardly move, but sometimes running is a courageous move. And it's always courageous to run from sins that would destroy us as men. I love the story of Joseph in the Bible in the Old Testament. And Potiphar's wife grabs him and come, come lie with me, Joseph. And Joseph escapes. He, he jumps out of his jacket and leaves her standing there with his jacket. And he books it. We have, there's a song that the kids sing. Uh, Joseph, he put his running shoes on. J- Joseph put his running shoes on. And I like that. It's, it's a courageous move to run. Our vice president does this. He has the, what he calls the Billy Graham rule. I'll never be alone with a woman who's not my wife. That is a courageous man. That is not a cowardly man. That is a courageous man. That is a man who is willing to run. <laughs> I like what a lot of men do for internet filters and accountability partners. It takes a courageous man to care enough about his inner man and the choices that he's making. It takes a courageous man to, have, to make those inner choices and to care enough about his inner man. 
So guys and ladies and everybody in the room, what is it in your life that might be corrupting your inner, inner man? There was a family in Texas eight years ago who decided it would be a really good idea to buy a pet lion, a really cute little cub. And they somehow were able to do this, and they brought it into their apartment. And they had this little lion, and it grew, and it became their friend and their pet. And one day, uh, they, as, as, uh, they, they slipped out of their apartment at night just to go talk to a neighbor for just a minute. And when they came back, they went into the baby's room and found that the lion had eaten off the fingers and toes of their baby. Some of us are keeping lions in our house. Some of us are keeping sins. Some of us are keeping things that are just going to be eating and gnawing away at us and destroying us. And we have a pet. It's, we think it's cute. We think it's okay. We think we can handle it. We think we can tame it. But you don't sit you don't, you don't invite a lion into your house. You don't sit and debate with a lion. You don't sit and have dinner with a lion. You run from a lion. Because any man, the most outstanding men I know, are the ones who work hard on their inner life. And you know, those men that do that, it, every single uh, effort that they make pays off. Because this inner life, our inner life, plays into everything else. In fact, it's the secret to everything else. Psalm chapter 25 and verse 14 says, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. In other words, the man who fears the Lord sits in counsel with the Lord. You sit in counsel. He, that man, is going to have a divine direction from the Lord. He's going to hear from God. We'll never be a man like Job until we take our inner man seriously. Then the next thing is that we, what we see in Job's life, and this unfolds a little bit more about who he was, and that leads us to number two. The number two principle is he didn't sacrifice his family, he sacrificed for them. He didn't sacrifice his family, he sacrificed for them. Verse two, Job, Job chapter one, and there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. What? Seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 she-asses, and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. So, real quickly, here he has a mega family. Ten kids. Considered a sign of prosperity in those days. He also has material wealth that you would not believe. That is nothing short of amazing. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a huge amount of employees to take care of. How much is this in today's numbers? Well, somebody have checked in just to the animal prices and today's value and came up with this number. Uh, in livestock alone, they say Job would be worth about $56 million. And, if, and that's not counting, really, if, if we're including the land that he needs, and today he would have tractors and other equipment really doing a lot of this. This man was one of the wealthiest men that's ever lived in their time, really. In fact, he was the wealthiest man, really, at that time. He was leading what would be considered today a multi-million dollar company, enterprise. But again, you don't get things like this without being ambitious. You do not get all this without being focused on business and without being focused on dollars, and being focused on what it's going to take to make a good life. You can't get there without that. So let me just put out this out there. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. And in and of itself, building wealth is not wrong. And we find out later in the book of Job that Job actually was an incredible, generous giver. He was a huge help to the people around him. But the point I'm trying to make right now is that this man had to be extremely busy. Busy. But there was one thing that he would not let suffer in all of his busyness and all of his focus on this earth and all the stuff that he had going on, he would not let his family's spiritual health suffer. This was far too important for him. Look at verse four. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. 
Thus did Job continually. Now think of this for a minute. He has 10 kids. 10 kids. Each of them has needs. Each one of those kids have needs from their dad. Each one of them have wants and desires from their dad. Each of them need education. They need physical safety. They need health. They need emotional security from their dad. They need love from their dad. And he's trying to provide all these things at the same time running a multi-million dollar enterprise and all of this. But most of all, Job sees through all of this and he sees that his kids and his family need spiritual health above everything. I have six kids and I get overwhelmed. And some people with two kids tell me that they get overwhelmed. But look at what Job did. His kids are at a party. Now it says each of them on their day, uh, they're celebrating something on their day. So most uh, scholars think that it's probably a birthday party, a birthday gathering. And they're all getting together and inviting each other for their birthdays and they're having a good time. Nothing wrong with wholesome parties. But Job knows that there's something about even good parties. That even good parties can lead to a focus on fleshly things. Our flesh can kind of get carried away. And at times, we can even maybe do things in our heart and in our minds, and maybe not even outwardly, that might curse God. Might curse God in our heart. And we, we might get carried away, taking God lightly. Say something or think something in our heart or do something that's just... Uh, that's just sinful in our hearts. We don't even hardly realize it. But Job was, he was so concerned even about that. He did not want his children's heart to be led away by recreation or, or fun. So he did what they did in these times. What Job did was he made an animal blood sacrifice for them. Fathers in those days had the role of priest. And he would stand in, as the priest, he would stand in for them before God and sacrifice this animal. And the picture was that all sin needs a blood covering. Jesus came along a couple thousand years later and died on the cross. And this picture, picture what Jesus was going to do as the lamb. But the point is that sin leads to death and we have to have that sin covered. So, Jim, or for, so Job excuse me, made sure he was doing this. That's a new name for Job, Jim. It's his nickname. But it says here that Job continually did this, and he led the way in his, in his family in worship. He was the leader in worship. Now, the point of putting this description here, God putting all this in here, it was obviously just to point to us, say, look at what kind of man Job was. That's the, why would God tell us this unless he was trying to say, look at what kind of man, look at what kind of man this was. He cared about his kids' hearts, even the secret things, even those things in their heart. How serious he took his God-given role. Now, biblically speaking, who has the primary responsibility of spiritual training in the home? The man. God called Adam first. Now you think about this, after Adam and Eve sinned, who did God, God said he didn't come looking for Eve first. He came looking for Adam first. Adam... Something's happened. I'm going to start with you. I'm holding you responsible for what's gone on here. Abraham was given the role of training, Genesis chapter 18. Moses gave it to the fathers in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Paul gave it to the fathers in Ephesians chapter 6. The biblical pattern is that men are held responsible for the spiritual things that take place in the home, the spiritual training. You see, leadership and being a head of a home is not about being the boss. It's about who, who bears the burden of responsibility for what goes on. That's what it's about. And in the case of a home, God is going to look to the man. Notice that Job took the lead of, in his home. He wasn't just telling them, do this, do this. He was doing it himself. He was the lead worshiper. He was the lead prayer. He was the lead lover. He was the lead sacrificer. And this is why, again, as, we, as you know, that's why you're here this morning, and I, I'm so thankful for the men of the home church that rise up and take this seriously. This is why men need to bring their families to church and not send their family to church. They need to get in, in the word themselves, and they need to get a word from being around God's people and so they can go back and lead their homes. They need to have conversations in the home about eternal things. They need to lead out in prayer 
I need to lead in Bible reading and devotions and things like that. And whatever the sacrifice, Job is thinking, I'll do it. Whatever the sacrifice I need to put in my life, whatever I need to push, push aside, I'll do it for the sake of my kids, for the sake of my home, for the sake of my wife. This is a man that had an eternal outlook. He was not focused on things. He was not focused on wealth, though he had those things. He, he, he really cared about what God thought. He wanted to please the Lord. Because really, who cares about those things in the end? You may remember, real quick, that horrible story for, that happened a few years ago in Stanford with a young man who violated a young woman. He violated her, and he was an unconscious girl. But, you know, I found out ra- later that... Um, her lady, this young lady afterwards would keep a picture that she drew of two bicycles on her wall by her bed. And those two images of bicycles represented something to her. They re- represented her heroes. Because in that story, there, there was actually two guys, two men who came along on bikes and saw what was going on, chased that man, and then tackled him and waited for the police to come. Those two guys were real men. The other guy was a boy. The the other guys were real men because they protected. Real men are protectors. That other kid, he was a boy who he lived to please only himself. He only thought about himself. Every man in here felt that heat rising up in them when I was telling that. And they wanted to do with that, they wanted to kill that kid. You know you did. And I'm sure every man in here would have been glad to protect that victim. But are you willing this morning to apply that sense of spiritual protection to your family, to the people around you, the people that God has put in your care? Are you willing to do whatever it takes spiritually to lead that family to Jesus? As a side note, if you think it's too late, gentlemen, or any guys in here, if you think it's too late, if you think you've messed up your kids, or your kids are messed up, and they, these things, it's too far gone. I just hope you're, that you're making a big mistake. It is never too late. I, I, I want you to think of somebody in the Bible. Think of Jacob in the Bible. He was not that good of a father. In fact, he built in division in his home with how he treated his kids and other things. But as a grandparent, God used him in the end. As a granddad, He brought those boys in and he put his hands on each one of them and delivered a blessing to each one of them. God can still use a man later on even when he's messed up. Thank Jesus for that because every single one of us have messed up. I mess up royally every single day. It's the truth. And I I do not do what I'm supposed to do. I do not carry the load I'm supposed to carry. I do not give to my kids and my family what I'm supposed to be giving all the time. I know this. That doesn't make, make, make me say, I'm just going to take a back seat and forget it. I'm just giving up. That's not what a man does. In fact, b- the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22, a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. As home leaders, I think we need to have a three-generational view. Not just a one generation, not just two generations, but three generations. A man's inheritance should always be a spiritual inheritance first. That's what the Bible talks about. Remember, Job Job wasn't a pastor. He didn't have theological training. He just knew that his family needed God continually. And so he invested in them. I see lots of men sacrificing their family rather than sacrificing for their family. Don't be one of those. Don't be one of those. Everything costs something. We have to decide what will we give up. Putting Jesus first in our lives will cost some time. It will cost some energy away from hobbies and work and things like that. But material possessions also will cost time and energy away from Jesus and away from family. What are you going to sacrifice? So men, your wife, children, grandchildren, and others need you to be the lead sacrificer, the lead sacrificer in your home and in your family. And then lastly this morning, something about Job. He had wealth, but wealth didn't have him. Thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for men like that. The devil was under the impression about Job, like lots of people, that Job's material wealth was the source of Job's happiness and the source of his devotion to the Lord. Now, we don't have time to go over the rest of all the verses, but let me summarize what happens next. In the next few verses, it gives us a glimpse behind the scenes into the courts of heaven, and it opens up and shows us what's going on with God and dealing with Satan. 
Satan thinks that if he strips Job of all those blessings, that Job is going to curse God. He will curse God. And here's why the devil thought that was going to work, because it's worked before, and it works all the time. Probably works for a lot of men, a lot of women. I'm going to take away some things, and they're going to curse God. But God knew that Job was different. So God allows this test to happen for even greater purification in Job's life. And the only thing Satan was not allowed to do was to touch Job's body. But he could do anything else to him. And this tells us that, by the way, that God is a sovereign God. He rules over everything. He is in control of all things. He is not the cause of all things to, that happen, but he, is, he does allow all things to happen. The amazing thing is here that Job goes through the loss of everything he has, and you know the story, you probably heard it. He loses everything, all that he has, but he doesn't end his own life. He doesn't end his own life. So let's look at how all this plays out. We're just going to look at the last few verses here, verse, starting in verse 13, and there, listen to this, how this plays out. There was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. There came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I, only I, am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came out uh, another and said, The Chaldeans uh, made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee how would a man like Job react to this? He had done everything right that he knew. He had done everything he knew to do that God wanted him to do, and yet now everything that God had given was taken away. Now, if his life, if Job in that moment, if his life was like a lot of us that, have, that put so much focus on material wealth, or like Jesus said, they, it consists in the abundance of things, a life that consists in the abundance of things, if that's, what, if that's our mentality, if that's the way we live, that's what Job, then he would be, this would be the end of him. But Job didn't have material wealth or even family as his God. Wealth and family weren't his God. God was his God. Here's what happens in verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle, a sign of deep, deep mourning, and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped. Would you worship in a moment like this? Verse 21, and said, here's what he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Wow. When material things or people become a God over a life, then our life is over when th those things change. When God is our God, then we can say these words, though they may be difficult even to spit out. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though we have to say them through painful tears. See, this all really comes back to who you're going to give your heart to. Which God will you serve? The God of money or the eternal God? Job did not see this coming. And I just want to remind everybody this morning, and I am a bright side kind of a guy, okay? I'm, the, I'm a bright side guy. But I have to just say this this morning, I feel like. You may not see your day coming. Your day could come at any minute. Your Job day could come. Here's the question. Are you focused on the right things? Where's your heart? Let me leave you with three words to remember for the men that, are wanted, that want, like to take this seriously. And so what can we do as men day after day? It's a powerful uh, few verses in the Bible. 
that give us these three words, and this will help us beat this God of love for money and love of possessions and what so many men are, are caught up in, this net. Here are the three words, flee, follow, and fight. Flee, follow, and fight. Flee, follow, and fight. You know, some people think the Bible is outdated. <laughs> you tell me if this doesn't sound like today, what we just looked at, and then now what we're about to look at right now. First Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 9. But they that will be rich. Now, notice real quick, that does not say they that are rich. It says they that will be rich. I mean, they're envying riches. Greed. They that will be rich fall into a temptation and a snare, a trap, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, passions, that drown men in destruction and perdition. Drown men. Man, that is so descriptive of what I see. Men drowning. Verse 10, for the love of money, again, not money, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That is a description of men, so many men, so many of the guys you work with, so many of the neighbors that you have, so many of the people around you. But here's a totally different way to live. Paul flips it upside down and says, Thou, O man of God, verse 11, is a totally different thing. But thou, O man of God, flee those things. Flee, just run from those things. Run from the love of money. Run from that covetous heart that's after material things. Run from that. It's the courageous thing to do. And follow after what? After righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience or endurance and meekness, gentleness. And then fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. These are powerful verses for us men. F flee, follow, and fight. He says, flee the love of those things and then follow after those eternal things and he lists them. I have to ask the question, what would righteousness do in this moral choice? What would godliness do in this, in this, in this relationship situation that I am? What would godliness do right now? What would be the godly thing to do? What would faith do in this financial situation I'm going through, this circumstances? What would faith do? What would love do in this marriage issue that I have going on? What would love do? What would patience, what would endurance do in this job that I'm in? How would patience, how would endurance deal with this? And what would meekness do in this volatile situation that I'm in with people? He says here to, to follow after those things and then fight the good fight of faith to pass it on to the next generation. I fight, I fight, I fight the good fight not just any fight, the good fight. That is grab on, and then he says lay hold on eternal life. That is grab on tight to the salvation that you've been given. Grab on tight and, and love it and look at it and realize what you have and hold on to it and say this is, the, this is what I'm living for. These are the eternal things, the eternal things, the eternal things. This is what I'm all about. And the Bible tells us if I follow those things, I'll live a life that makes an eternal impact. God tells me to flee, to follow, and to keep fighting. Honestly, even if I had $10 billion, $10 billion, $10 billion, would it really matter in the end? That's how much Steve Jobs was worth when he died at the age of 56, $10 billion. But you know, Steve Jobs did not have enough money to beat cancer. And we're all going to die just like Steve Jobs then what? What have we done? What have we done for God's name? What have we left as a spiritual inheritance for our children and the people around us? What eternal difference have we made in our limited time and resources that we have on this earth? You know, I think about some men I, uh, I respect and honor. I think of recently a man like Herb Vopel, our 
our dear man who used to come here at church, a member of our church for many years, he died recently. God in his life, he and his wife just served the Lord steadily their, their, their life, throughout their life. He died in his 90s. God gave them no children. He never blessed them with children. But he invested, but Herb still, both of them, invested heavily in the things of God. He helped start churches. There's still churches that are going up in the foothills because he decided, I want to help start churches. He gave himself, he gave his resources, he gave his life here just coming. And you know, if you met him, he, was, he had this genuine and contagious joy at the age of 96 that you just, you couldn't explain. His wife had already died, and I remember laying, or standing there talking to him, literally, uh, I think the day or two before he died, in his hospital bed and talking to him and, and just stroking him and saying how much I appreciated him. And he, he, he said, I can't, I can't wait to see my wife. I miss her so bad. His wife died, but that didn't take his faith away. It didn't take his joy away. He was still then just asking me right then, you know, how's, how's your wife doing, you know? How are things going for you? And even in his death, he was giving, and I just, the reason I bring, one of the reasons I bring this up is because it's so sweet. Just this past week, we got a check in the mail to, that came from Herb Boppel because he had put after his death that uh, he, would, he wrote it in that this amount will go to help build this building over here. And that's, that's what kind of guy we're talking about. A kind of guy that has an eternal outlook, the kind of guy that was looking ahead before he even died. This is the kind of guy that had something in him that saw the big picture, saw the right picture. And right now he's enjoying the blessings of, of a life that was focused on eternal things. People, are, I'm sure, are coming up to him and thanking him for a job well done. Thank him for what he did on this earth. Imagine if every Christian man stepped up and we broke that cycle of trying to be like the next guy. And I know many of you are. And I want to thank God for you. You, many of you in this room, you guys, I'll tell you right now, you're heroes, heroes of the faith. You're the kind of guys that look past that stuff and look deep into the heart of what God is doing. But if anybody in here, any of us, even, even just a little bit, like I have, if you've allowed things or people to become a God at times, then it's time to give God back his rightful throne. You might need to resurrender your heart even today. And let me just invite you to, if you've never truly accepted Jesus into your life and made him your Savior and Lord and asked him and said, God, cleanse me from my sin, Every sin needs to be covered by the blood of Jesus. And that's the only way to heaven, the Bible tells us. That I would suggest that this morning would be the morning that you would just give your heart to Jesus. Can we all bow our heads and close our eyes? Thank you for taking the time to listen to this guy, this young kid.